Today's Bible reading will be from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when, his son, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, hello everybody. Great to be with you. Happy New Year. Uh, it's exciting to celebrate and, and be together uh, for this first service of the year. And it's great to see you all in your masks uh, and uh, uh, submitting to the authorities that God has placed uh, before us to lead us. And so um, the New Year is an interesting time, isn't it? The, the New Year is often the time of big claims, yeah? of big, big claims. You know them, like big claims like, this year I'm going to start eating more healthy. This year I'm going to read more books. This year I'm going to actually stick to my budget. Uh, maybe I'm going to make a budget. Now, um, I'm not going to comment on how unsuccessful I've been at all of the above uh, in the past. I've been quite unsuccessful. Uh, but as we get into today's um, passage, well, um, given it's the new year, I wanted to begin by reading for us some big claims. 
uh, not of goals that you might have of resolutions, but big claims about the heart of the Christian faith. Yeah, big claims about the heart of the Christian faith. Ready? Um, follow along. These are all made by the late theologian J.I. Packer. Uh, they're going to be on the screen. The first one is this. If you, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, what's the, what's the, ju- what, what's, what's, what's the standard? Well, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. Here's a second What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer, Packer says he knows, is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. And here's one more. Everything that Jesus taught, everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in, what? The knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Big claims. Big, big claims. See, what is behind these claims? It's this, right? It's this, that your Christianity will remain starved until you've known and cherished life with God as your Father. Yeah, your Christianity will remain starved until you've known and cherished life with God as your Father. See, I think for many of us, I think for many of us, the reality of God as Father, I mean, it's not too different really from the reality of having, say, Gladys as our premier. Right? We know for most of us that they're both real. We know that they influence our lives. But in terms of any warmth, any real relationship, well, That's just not there. But here's the thing, right? The Bible tells us that we aren't just a saved group huddled together as strangers coming to God. We are told over and over again that we are saved into a family, adopted out of love, made to be children of God as our Father, which means we have all the closeness, the affection, the security, the generosity that comes from the privilege that gives to us. And so my prayer today, as we start this new year, is that we take another look at this probably very familiar parable, and that we might grasp more of what it means to um, believe, yes, but more so to cherish that God is our Father, to cherish that, because there really is no higher privilege. So why don't you pray with me as we begin. Almighty God, you are reality behind all reality. You are entirely self-existent and free from needing or being constrained by anything or anyone. We read over and over again how dangerous and difficult it is to draw near to you. And yet because of Jesus, we now can approach your throne boldly and confidently as a child would do to their father. For that is who you are for so many of us here. And so by your Holy Spirit, make this truth a heart and life-transforming truth for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, So friends, for a bit of a roadmap, we're going to work through the story um, that, that Wendy just read out for us. And then we're going to explore what we learn about God, our Father, through this parable. A parable is just a story with a lesson attached to it that Jesus tells. Yeah. So first we're going to look at the story, and then we're going to explore what we learn. So firstly, the story. 
Now, given um, the story hinges really um, on these two sons, we're going to take another look at the story from the perspective of firstly the younger son and the father, and then the older son and the father. So let's start with the son that this parable is probably most famous for, uh, the younger son. The younger son. Now, what do we learn? What do we learn about this younger son? Well, we see that this younger brother, this younger son, wants, he wants nothing to do with his father, right? Nothing. All this younger son wants is his father's stuff, his share of the estate. Not after his father passed away, as is custom, but beforehand, right? And that's a huge deal, right? Because while the father is still alive, much like it is today, the wealth was the father's to own. It was the father's to manage. And, 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 and while the father was alive, the children were to help in the family work. And so for the younger son to come to the father and demand his share of the estate meant what? It meant the son was saying at least three things to his dad. He's going, Dad, I want nothing to do with you or this family anymore. I want to leave. I want to be anywhere but here. I want to be far away from you. He's also saying, Father, I I wish you would die already. Actually, I wish you died years ago so I'd have my money already. And because you haven't died, well, I'm not waiting around anymore. Give Give it to me now. And he's also saying, Father, the only reason that you are significant in my life, it's not because you're my dad. It's because of your stuff. Now, this is a punch in the guts. And so how does the father react to something like that, that his son comes to him and says to his face? Well, surprisingly, rather than disowning him, rather than probably giving him a smackdown that he would deserve, uh, Jesus tells us that the father actually gives him what he wants. The father then goes to the land, he divides the land, and then the son, presumably, most likely, he goes to sell his part of the land. And he probably sells it cheap as chips in order to pocket the money and, and hitch and get out of town. And so this younger son, if you want to summarize it, in his outward rebellion, he wants nothing to do with his father. He only wants his father's stuff. He's insulted and rejected his father and his family. He's asked for the share of the estate just so that he can sell it for cheap, so that he can move as far away as he can possibly go to a distant country, we're told, to live a wild life, or other translation call it a foolish life, foolish living. Now, almost just to confirm this foolishness, we find out in that very same sentence what happens to all this wealth that he gets. Well, he blows it all, doesn't he? And the timing of blowing it all isn't great either because there's a severe famine that's hit the land. And so the only choice he has left in this now distant country is to work. And to work with the one animal as a Jew that they're meant to have nothing to do with, yeah? Pigs. And so we also hear and learn that this younger son, he gets so hungry, he even is willing to eat pig slosh. And even then, no one will give it to him. They'd rather give the food to the pigs. See, we have to see that this younger son, he's really hit rock bottom very quickly, hasn't he? He's a Jewish man working with unclean pigs, and he is famished. He's so famished that he wants their food. It doesn't get any lower or any more dishonorable for a Jew. No one is interested in him anymore because he's got no money left to spend and no presents left to give. He's disowned his family. He's lost all his friends. No one's going to give him a thing. And all that's really left for him at this particular point for the part that he's on is to just die in the severe famine. That's all that's left. So you can imagine the younger son as he initially left home, right? He's leaving with so much pride, yeah? 
all the money, all the determination to get away from father and his family as far as possible. But now, at his lowest point, well, that money's gone. His health is gone. And his pride is smashed. All self-respect, all sense of reputation, gone. And so Jesus tells us, it's at this low point. What does he decide to do? Well, he decides to turn for home. No longer as the entitled son, but the humbled man. See, Jesus shares with us the younger son's inner thoughts. Yeah, His plan is he begins his long trip home. Read verse 17 to 18 with me. Right? The son, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. See, what's the younger son thinking? He's going, nothing can be worse than my situation now. If I, if I were to go back to my father, if I were to admit my wrong and forfeit my right to be a child of his, then I could become a hired servant. And that would still be infinitely better than anything now. Right? And so apart from the better conditions, um, we've got to think about, well, why does he want to go back as a hired servant? Because right? that's interesting. He could just go back as a servant. Why a hired servant? Right? Here's why. A hired servant in those days meant someone who actually learned a trade right? and then earned a wage. In other words, the younger son's plan is to go home, become a hired servant, not to get more money to splurge again, but to get a wage to begin to, to, to actually pay back. To pay back the massive debt that he owed from selling the land and shaming his father. See, the younger son likely can't shake the thought that if he had wished his father dead, if he had shamed his family to the extent that he did, if he had killed the wealth of the estate as much as he has, the only remotely possible way for him to even have the audacity to go home is only if he's willing to try and repay that debt. In other words, for the rest of his life, the younger son is now putting himself in a position to work that debt off. But you know this, we know this, right? The reality is, it's an impossible goal. It's an impossible goal. A sum that big, a debt that huge, a shame that heavy, it's impossible to repay. No amount of money, no amount of years can repay that. But he turns for home anyway, and Jesus tells us that as the sun approaches nearer to home, and you need a picture and imagine this scene as it's happening, as the sun draws closer... We're told as he's, as he's still a, a, you know, a far way off, where you can probably just begin to make out his silhouette of his body from a distance, the father sees him. The father sees him, right? And this is it, right? This is the encounter the son is so anxious for. He's so anxious that he's got this speech all ready to go because the stakes are just far too high to stuff up. And so he sees the figure of his father, and the father has now seen him and the anxiety and the nerves and the uncertainty. They're probably all kicking in. He's, got, he's probably thinking, you know, is he going to kick me out again? Is, is he going to beat me? Is he going to not want to see me? Will he disown me for real this time? What will the father do? Well, you know the answer, don't you? What does the father do? The father, Jesus tells us, starts running to him. Running to him. And this would have been the shock of this son's life for one distinguished man like his father just don't run, right? His father would have been a well-respected, highly regarded leader of his community. Only children ran, not distinguished men. Not men of his stature, they don't run. 
The clothes he would wear as a distinguished man would have prevented him from running as well, right? They wore long robes, not the pants or jeans that you and I might wear that you can just roll up easily. Right? They wear these robes that nearly went to the ankle, so if he were to run, he would just trip over himself. And so this son has probably never in his life seen his father run, but here the father's probably picked up the robes from the ankle to above the knee, holding the robes, shamefully bearing his hairy legs to everybody, disregarding social code, and he's running to him. Not to catch him, not to punish him, but to throw his hands around him, to kiss him, and to welcome him home. See, there's no hatred, right? There's no anger, there's no bitterness. We're told he is filled with compassion. And by the way, the reason the father saw him from a long distance wasn't because it was just some random encounter where he's just passing by the front door and he sees his son from a distance. No. It's because the father was waiting there every day, looking as far as his eye could see, waiting for the figure of his youngest son to return home. But that's not all, right? The son begins to say his speech, and before he can even finish, the father interrupts him, right? And throws it all out, and he says to him, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sand it on his feet. Put it, bring a, the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost. He was lost and is found. See, instead of the plans to become a hired servant, the father instead gives him the best robe, likely his robe, and dresses him. Rather than earning a wage to pay off the massive debt, the father puts an expensive ring on his finger, the family ring, and sandals to cover his sore feet. Instead of eating with hired men, the father hosts the biggest celebratory party that he's ever thrown with the most expensive item in his entire estate, the fattened calf, in honor of his return. See, friends, what is the father saying to the son by doing all of this? He's saying, I'm not waiting until you have groveled. I'm not going to give you a job. I am just going to take you back. I'm going to cover your shame. I will cover your poverty. I will replace your filthy rags with the family ring and my very robes. Welcome home, son. It's remarkable, right? Remarkable. But that's not the only son the father speaks with that day, is it? He has one more son, the often forgotten son. But he's very much there, the elder brother, the elder son. And Jesus tells us that this older son, this elder son, he comes from home from work, a long day's work, and he's got no idea what's happened that day. And as he gets closer, he begins to hear music. He begins to hear dancing again from a distance, and he has no idea. Like I said, he's got no idea what's going on, and so he speaks to a servant, Jesus tells us, and he finds out what? That his younger brother has returned. The same brother that screwed him, screwed up royally. That left him behind to do all the work of the land. That's abandoned the family and his duty. And so he's now back and he finds out that his father is throwing the biggest party he's ever thrown. Because of his return. And Jesus tells us the elder son is furious. Absolutely furious. Not because there's a party per se. But because the party's not for him. You hear it as he blows up at his dad, verse 29 to 30. He says to his dad, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He can't even call this younger brother his brother anymore. He says, this son of yours. Did you hear it? 
He can't even stomach calling his younger brother his brother. He's doing the maths, right? This younger brother, he's done nothing and he receives everything. He's done everything and yet he receives nothing. And he's furious. And so he's yelling at his father, look, you owe me. I've given everything for you. I've enslaved myself to you. But here's the thing, right, friends? The eldest son's speech actually reveals something very crucial about him. And it's this, that while he believes he is infinitely better than his younger brother, the reality is is that he's not different from him at all. He believes he's infinitely better than his younger brother, but the reality is he's not all that different from from him at all. Why? Well, you just got to think... And stop and think for a moment with what he says, right? His speech, his blow up at his dad, it shows just as much resentment for his father as the younger brother's demand for the estate way back when. It shows this older brother, he wants his father's stuff just as much as the younger brother does too. The only difference is the way they tried to get it. The younger son tried to get it by a bold power play, by lighting the family bridge on fire and then leaving. The elder son's method was to stay close and stay obedient. It's almost like he's saying, because I've never disobeyed you, you now owe me. You have to do things for me. You have to give things to me. And when you don't, and when you give it to somebody else, I'm going to blow up in your face because that's been my motivation for doing and enslaving myself for all these years. He's really not that different. Just like the younger brother, the elder brother wants nothing to do with the father. He's just in it to get the stuff of the father so that he, the father owes it to him and gives it to him. And so with all that we see about the brother's heart, the elder brother's heart, and his refusal to enter the party, how does the father now respond to him? Right? Because really, this, this, this whole situation, it, it's a big social nightmare, right? The, I mean, the father is the host of this massive party, He's the distinguished man and leader. He now has to leave his party, his guests, and he has to go out to beg his firstborn, no less, to come in. This is a social dilemma. So how does the father respond? Well, again, surprisingly, we hear with great tenderness. In verse 31, he says, My son, or it could be translated, my child, you are with me always. And all I have is yours. See, the the father could have yelled at him for such an embarrassment at a public event. He could have disowned him for, for his son yelling at him in front of all his friends and guests. Less extreme, he could have defended his decision at least, or make a comment on how awful his 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 eldest's behavior is. But he doesn't do any of those things. The father goes out to the elder son, just like he did with the younger son, and he urges him to come in. Just like he didn't want to disown his youngest, he doesn't want to disown his eldest. And all he does is acknowledge him. Show his tender fatherly love towards him and invite him to the party. See, even though he was truly glad that his younger son returned, he's not going to forget the elder. He's not going to take him for granted. Despite how happy he is at the younger son returning, as soon as he hears that the elder son has arrived... He willingly leaves his party. He goes out to him and pleads him to come in. So friends, that's the story, right? That's the story. And so as we move to what do we learn, we've got to ask, what does this parable reveal about God our Father? What does it reveal about God our Father? I hope your mind's already been racing 
right, as we've heard how the father in this parable has responded to each son in turn. But today we're going to just focus on two things about the father and about the father's love in particular. And it's this, it's that the father's love does not compare and the father's love comes first. Yeah, the father's love does not compare. The father's love comes first. All right, firstly, it does not compare. Now, you might be going, um, that's not right. He clearly does compare. He's clearly got a favorite. I mean, look how, look how dramatic and grand the party that he throws for the younger son is. It might look like that from first glance, but the elder son is no less loved or appreciated. Right? How do we see this? Well, it's because the father truly knows and loves them both individually. Right? He sees the younger son. He sees how passionate he is, even when he's disobedient. And he sees the obedience of the older son, even when there's no passion. Right? He sees the rebellion of the younger son, and he doesn't compare it to how compliant the older son is. He doesn't compare the um, unwillingness of the elder son to the willingness of the younger son. And yes, while the return of the younger son leads him to call for celebration, the thought of the elder son missing out is all he needs to ignore status quo and extend an invitation to share in the father's joy. Jesus is telling us there is no favoritism. There is no favoritism in the love of God the Father. God the Father does not compare, and I don't know about you, but that almost, almost feels impossible that that could be the case. Right? We are so used to being compared, aren't we? We're compared by who is more or less attractive. We're compared by who is more or less successful. We're compared by who is more or less intelligent. Our bonuses at work are based on comparison. Our accomplished are heightened because of comparison. Even the best of our friendships aren't immune to comparison. Sibling rivalry is a thing. When someone else is praised, it's difficult not to think of ourselves as somehow less praiseworthy. When we see recognition being given to somebody else, we can't help but wonder, why why not me? We are so used to comparison. But here's the thing, friends. God does not compare ever. God doesn't have some heavenly scoreboard ranking you, ranking me, and we need to be somehow afraid that we don't make the grade or the cut. His love for you and me, his love for his children does not have favorites. Whether you are more like the younger or more like the elder or somewhere in between, you need to hear this, that God sees you for who you are. No more, but definitely, definitely no less. He receives you and loves you with the same affection as he shows his very own son. And so, friends, would you see the great love the Father has lavished, we read in Scripture, lavished on you. But the second thing we learn is that the Father's love comes first. Um, some of you know that my wife, Jody, she's a Chinese Mauritian. Yeah, she's a Chinese Mauritian. Now, some, uh, Mauritius is a little island um, near Africa, if you can picture the world map. Um, And it's an island that's been greatly influenced by French culture. Um, And so these Chinese Mauritians, unlike probably any other Chinese or Asian culture that I know of, they're they're incredibly affectionate, right? They're incredibly affectionate. Now, what do I mean? Well, uh, my parents um, are from Hong Kong. Um, And uh, in Hong Kong, and I assume much of Asia, hugging your family is a little odd. I remember at my wedding being hugged by my dad. It was the most foreign and unfamiliar thing. Um, you know, you might, get, you might get a thumbs up or something, right? Good job. 
but hugs, nah, no way, right? And so physical affection um, from family, I love my family, don't get me wrong, but physical affection from family is just not something I'm used to, yeah? But since marrying Jody, and we've been married for three years now, I've been exposed, in a, it's a good thing, exposed to this Chinese Mauritian culture. And so at every family get-together, or at least pre-COVID anyway, um, there is this big shout of saying hi, as you see everybody, and then it's followed by a hurry, hurrying towards you to give you a kiss on the cheek. And it's not just one kiss, they go to the other cheek too and kiss the other one too. And so you get two cheeks, bop, bop, and you're meant to do the same back to them, right? And so at any family gathering, if you've got all the extended family going, that's like 10 minutes of the gathering just kind of moving and maneuvering from person to person, giving people kisses and stuff. Before you sit down and do anything else, you can't do anything else until that's, until that's done. And you talk about leveling up quickly, right? And so every time I see my wider family, they take the first step to remind me that, you know what, I've actually been welcomed into this family. They take the first step. And we see in this parable that God goes far, far further for his children. That God is not the one, he's not the one who stays home, right? He's not the one that just sits there, doesn't move, and expects his children to come to him and to grovel and to apologize and to beg for forgiveness and promise to do better. No. God is the one, as we saw in the, fa in the father in the parable, he leaves the house. He ignores his dignity by running to his children. God's the one who pays no attention to carefully crafted apologies or promises of change. He brings his children home into a feast. His arms are open wide. God in every way has taken the initiative to love us, even when we, like, this, like both sons at points in the parable, want nothing to do with him and just want his stuff. The parable that we've just looked at, and um, we, didn't, we, didn't, we didn't read all of them, really it's, it's the last of a set of three that Jesus tells. Yeah, and, and it's a, it's, he tell, Jesus tells three sets of parables, and the whole point is it's meant to reinforce again and again that it's God who takes the initiative. Right? God is the shepherd who goes looking for his lost sheep. God is the one who lights the lamp and sweeps the whole house in search for the lost coin until it is found. And God is the father who watches and waits for his children, runs out to meet them, embraces them, and pleads them, and begs and urges them to come home. God's arms are not closed as you come to Him. His arms are wide open because He has already taken the first step to you and to me. Now, you might be going, well, hey, you know, Dom, that's a great story. It's great that we see the Father's arms are like that. But how do I know that that's true? How can I know that that's true and that's just not something in this story? And you see, Jesus wasn't telling this parable just to make people feel warm and fuzzy. Jesus was telling this story because he was there as proof that God has taken the first step to welcome and love us. What do I mean? Well, Jesus is the only one in history who took the path of the younger son, not out of rebellion, but as the obedient son of the Father. He came to us, not from one country to a distant country, but from the glories of heaven to the distant earth. And like the younger son who could not pay the debt, Jesus could. He gave away all, his, all he had, even his life, to pay not his debt, but ours. 
He paid our debt for rebelling against the Father. He returned to his Father's home after doing that, after rising, and he did all of that as the true, better, younger son in order to bring all of those who are far off back home to God. And as he returns back to his Father, it's as if God the Father says to all the angels, quick, bring out the best robe, put it on Jesus, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Let's eat, let's celebrate, because my children who were far from me can now come home. They were lost, but now they're found. My son has brought them home. See, God has taken the first step to love us by sending Jesus to be the better younger son. But he's not just the better younger son, he's also the better older son as well. See, the older son in the story... He couldn't accept his younger brother anymore, could he? He couldn't forgive his younger brother, could he? The price to do that was just too much. It was too high. To bring him, his younger brother, back to the family was just a price he would not pay. And so he rejects him. But Jesus is the better older brother. He, he looks at how far we are from God and he willingly says, you know what? I'm willing to bear the cost. The price, he says, unlike the brother in the story, is worth paying. And so on the cross, the better elder brother paid our debt in our place. He's stripped of his dignity so that we might be clothed with dignity. He's treated as an outcast so that we might be welcomed and call God our Father. He's, he's abandoned my God so that we might be welcomed. There is no other way for the Heavenly Father to bring us home except at the expense of our better older brother. And so God has taken the first step to welcome us by sending Jesus to be the greater elder son. See, friends, this is God's way of telling you today, in the beginning of this year, that like the father in the story, I have taken the giant first step. I have sent my son to be the better younger and elder son because I want you to be in my family again. I want you restored and if he went to such great lengths to take that first step to demonstrate his love, even when we never deserved it, well, you can be sure that God, as God's adopted child, that it's a love that remains for you. And it means that every day for the rest of your life, till all of eternity, you walk in the embrace of the Father. And so, friends, as we close, right? as we close, I'm going to get the band to come up, Right? Do, you, do you know the love of the Father? Do you cherish the love of the Father? Do you live out of that love of the Father for you? Because like any good parent, it's a love that will never let you go. Like any good adopted parent, he will go out of his way so you feel his love. That you know the privilege and security that comes from being one of his. I want to end um, with one last huge claim. Uh, from, again, that same author, Packer. Because um, I reckon it's a message to the heart that I believe if we properly let it sink deeply, if we let it plumb the depths of our hearts, it's going to transform our entire being. And so read with me this last quote, this large, large, last huge claim. Knowing God as Father, Packer writes, is this Christian secret of a happy life? Yes, certainly but we have something both higher and profounder to say. That knowing God as Father is the Christian secret, not just to a happy life, but of a Christian life. And of a God-honoring life. And you really can't, do, you really can't live a Christian life or a God-honoring life without knowing God as Father. 
These are the aspects, Packer writes, that really matter. May this secret become fully yours and fully mine. May this secret become fully yours and fully mine. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for the wonderful, extravagant, generous love that you show to us. That your arms aren't folded. That we don't have to reach some level. That you don't wait for carefully crafted apologies. And you yearn and desire to welcome us home. We thank you for your amazing love. That it doesn't have favorites. That it takes the initiative to us. And so, Father, I pray that we might fully know this and see the great love that you have lavished on us. We commit this year to you. We commit our lives for you. Till Jesus returns and for all eternity. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.